At number 55 on the Spirit of Soho mural is the saxophonist and co-founder of the most famous jazz club in the world. You may have heard of it, it still bears his name, it's Ronnie Scott. Born into an East End Jewish family in 1927, Ronnie Scott began his musical journey playing the cornet, but soon switched to tenor sax and was playing professionally in various small bands by the age of 16. After the Second World War, he played in house bands on transatlantic ferries, and it was his exposure to cutting-edge modern jazz on his frequent trips to New York that influenced his musical taste and style for the rest of his life. In 1959, he set up a club in an empty whitewashed basement on Gerrard Street with fellow saxophonist Pete King. The idea was to create a space for local musicians to meet and play. At this stage, union rules prohibited American musicians from playing here. But when that rule was dropped in 1961, Ronnie and Pete were soon able to attract top American talent to their pokey cellar. In 1965, they opened a new club called Ronnie Scott's. It's still there today at 47 Fifth Street. And the original home was renamed The Other Place until its lease ran out in 1967. But you can find all that on the internet. So to hear some personal memories about Ronnie Scott, I got in touch with Barry Fantoni. Barry is a musician, author, painter, and the satirist who created EJ Thrib for Private Eye. He's also a former TV presenter, cartoonist, playwright, and more besides. And as one of the early writers on Private Eye, he was a neighbour and friend of Ronnie Scott's in the 1960s. Barry now lives in Turin, so we were unable to meet at Ronnie's club, which is a shame. So I called him up on Skype. Ronnie's family lived quite close to my own in, in the East End, just on the kind of edge of the Stepney. And um, Ronnie's family lived not very far away. They, they were called Shat. That was the family name, um, S-C-H-A-T-T. Yeah. And his dad was called Jack, but people called him Johnny. And then I was born in 1940 and Ronnie was born in 38, um, in 28, sorry. And... Um, and so there was obviously a very big age difference. Um, uh, and so we didn't know each other as young men. But when we finally did meet, if Ronnie felt inclined, which wasn't often, we would talk about our life in the East End and what it was like early on. But his reminiscences of it were very different because he had lived through the war as a relatively grown-up child. A teenager, wouldn't he, yeah. Uh, whereas, whereas for me, it was all happening. I mean, you know, we were bombed out the first time they dropped bombs, you know. So, so in 1940, we had to go and move into the country. But so I didn't see London again until 45, right. um, which time Ronnie was already um, working, working with big bands, trying to get work, um, playing the tenor saxophone without at that stage really I think any idea of what he was going to do eventually and it wasn't apparent to Ronnie until I think he met up with other like-minded musicians who wanted to play bebop and not traditional jazz not like Akabilk and, and you know kind of banjos and sort of jumping up and down jiving you know Ronnie wanted to wear sunglasses and be cool and, and, and have a club and smoke pot instead of drinking pints of beer. You know, there was a big difference between the traditionalists and the modernists, a bit like mods and rockers would be a good analogy. Ronnie's break with the past and his, and his uh, embracing of the new and, did, and desperately wanting to play 
bebop, modern jazz, like the Americans, became an overriding musical directive. It, 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 it dominated that part of his life, the part that was um, given to music was dominated by aiming at excellence, and, 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 and he was very dedicated in that respect. In one of your emails, you said that um, he was a much better player than he gave himself credit for. It, what did you mean by that? Because, I mean, well, he, I, I would have thought he had supreme confidence in his abilities because he was so uh, accomplished, you know. I can answer it in two words. Tubby Hayes. The Dominion Theatre London, the NJF proudly present in concert, the exciting Jazz Couriers, co-led by Britain's top tenor men, Ronnie Scott and Tubby Hayes. Tubby Hayes, born in 1935, much younger than Ronnie, was a genius, the, the finest jazz musician, finest saxophone player, rather, this country has ever produced. And Ronnie formed a band called the Jazz Couriers with, with Tubby Hayes. So I can do a bit of counterpoint. So I'm going to go over to old J.S. Sparks' house and say, hey, J.S. Spark, do you want to join my band? Yeah. <laughs> Every single day of my life, I'm going to think, I'm not going to write counterpoint against any, anywhere near this. And Ronnie thought that, that his playing was so inferior to Tubby Hayes that, that, that whatever he did would never be thought of in the same way. Tubby's working day would be, and it's important I say this because it is part of Ronnie's life as well, Tubby would get up at five o'clock, he would drive to Elstree, he would spend four hours working in a pit band playing, or orchestra band playing for a film. He'd come back, he'd get another job, he'd do a radio broadcast in the afternoon, he'd do some more work, even he'd reduce some writing in the late afternoon, and in the evening he'd play to two o'clock. Then he'd go home on, to his place on Brixton Hill, where I'd see him quite regularly, because I lived there too, completely worn out, and it killed him. And Ronnie, um, had a different lifestyle. He was much cooler, much more laid back. He wasn't compulsive. He had the club. And Ronnie's central interest was horse racing, telling jokes and having sex with stray women um, <laughs> in, in, in reverse order. I mean, <laughs> and, and the saxophone kind of came last. Um, and right. a conversation with Ronnie would be very largely about beautiful women that he had met at the club very recently. Um, <laughs> followed by, can you lend me 10 quid, because there's absolute dead sir at 2.30 at Kempton. Uh, and um, so Ronnie wasn't, wasn't going to burn himself out. Anyway, I went to see Tubby, and Tubby was really, really ill. And, and, he, and it was late afternoon one summer Sunday. And Ronnie describes it very beautifully. And he said, I saw him and we talked about the band we had together. And, it, and Ronnie said, you know, I, I'm very sorry in a way, you know, because I always felt, you know, I was letting the side down with my solos, you know, because what you did was so magnificent. And Tubby said, and it, and it actually cracks me up as I say it, I learned everything from you, Ronnie. Wow. And Ronnie closed these doors, you know, they have in hospitals with those portholes in, you know, and he looked back through and he could see Tubby sort of half asleep and he just burst into tears and wept. And it, he realised then, I think, that... that that he did have something to say and he did have, and you listen to him play, really listen and he does have that. Many of the, the great saxophone players, many of the great jazz musicians throughout the history of jazz have been Jewish. Stan Getz is 
known to everybody because he had a lot of hits, including Desafonado and and all that kind of thing. But Steingetz doesn't sound a very Jewish name. It sounds like it should come from somewhere like Scandinavia, but he was Jewish. I mean, you know the great story about Steingetz and, and Ronnie, and, but I have to explain, Steingetz was the most awkward, awkward employee ever. I mean, his demands on Ronnie were just ridiculous. I mean, about hotels in which he should stay and taxis here and everything. And Ronnie would start with a, a joke and he said, uh, you'll have to forgive me, ladies and gentlemen, I'm, you know, I'm not my best tonight. Uh, I've, got a, I've got a very bad back, you know. One of the reasons is I put my back out leaning backwards to please Stan Getz. And, and, <laughs> and, and yeah, it, and, and then they'd play a fast number and there'd be some kind of minor applause. And then he'd say, OK, ladies and gentlemen, could you all put your ha whole hands together and try and contact the living? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it, I mean, it was funny, and and it was a, a pleasure to be with him. And of course, a lot of the stuff was off the cuff, and you tend not to remember those things. It's just fun to be with a guy who's funny. Did you actually um, play at, at Ronnie Scott's? Yes, I have. Yes, okay. I played with, with Ronnie or in the, in sort of no, not ones. with Ronnie. Um, um, uh, R R Ronnie was very, very generous. So any calls that came up. Like they want to raise money for something. Um, I remember the private eye needed to raise money once, big libel action. And so, um, because I'm a jazz musician, I said well, to Richard Ingrams, the editor at the time, I said, well, why don't I try and make a grand or two with Ronnie and we put on some jazz concerts at private eye and get some players, some big names. And then, then Ronnie said he'll donate everything to, to the, the, the libel fund, you know, the, to uh, protect ourselves from the from the writ from Sir James Goldsmith, who we called Sir James Goldsmith. So I organised a bunch of, with Ronnie. We did some, uh, got some poets. We did a poetry reading, Michael Horowitz and and Ronnie Lang and and uh, and some other some high flyers came along and read poetry, and we did some, you know, we did a lot of jazz and and some comedy as well. So, so that, 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 and, and Ronnie gave everything away, and so, but, but, so that was my main reason for playing at Ronnie's. You know, there's a room upstairs for people of my ability. You know, which I mean, you know, if Count Basie is in the room downstairs, you don't, you don't, you don't join in. You know, you yeah. Know? You know, so, so you have to respect the fact that there are, you know, that Ronnie's main room was always to Americans because they brought the money in. When Ronnie died in suspicious circumstances. By that, I mean they're not sure whether he died naturally or killed himself. Nobody bothered to look for his saxophones. And later, Pete found them all under Ronnie's bed. There was a king baritone, two tenor saxophones, two altos that belonged to his dad, and an alto that belonged to Ronnie. And they put them up for sale at Phillips, uh, the auction house. And I saw in the paper that morning that, that they were going up, and I went along, and uh, it was extraordinary. The, the sale was advertised as rare musical instrument sale. I expected that every jazz musician in London would be, and I would be a spectator. And there were, you know, there was a Stradivarius violin for sale, for example. You know, really, really old guitars that, that, that were worth hundreds of thousands of pounds. And stuck in a corner was Ronnie's, all Ronnie's saxophones, a whole kind of lot, lot eight. And uh, so, if, um, Guy, you know, he's a lot eight is a saxophone belonging to late Ronnie Scott. Um, they have an opening bid of £100 for, for the collection. Selling, so selling put, as a job lot, not selling in the Yes, yeah, selling as a job lot, right. yeah. So I said, so I put my hand up, 100 quid. No one else was there. 
<laughs> any advance, no. So I, I got all Ronnie's saxophones for a hundred quid. You uh, uh, pulling my leg, seriously? No, no. Seriously, they're, they're worth thousands. The, the baritone itself is worth seven thousand pounds. I sold the baritone uh, to to a friend, and it's interesting that he, Tommy Smith was runner-up of last year's BBC Young Jazz Musician of the Year. He's one of the best players in Britain, and um, I'm so so impressed by Tommy's playing that I've bequeathed uh, Tom Smith all Ronnie saxophones, and he takes them out on gigs. He's repaired all his father's saxophones, so they're playable. And Tommy's dad, Steve Smith, runs a company called True Call, and he invented a system which stops cold calls coming into your home. And he's made absolute millions from this. And he brought Ronnie Scott's old jazz club sign. So when you go to Steve Smith's house, you see Ronnie in the kitchen, you see Ronnie Scott jazz club sign and you can hear Tom Smith playing his dad. Wow. <laughs> it, it's a, and it's a weird, weird story, man. And it's a very small world. <laughs>